Sorry, I'm being silly. I'm trying to get myself energized here. You can laugh at me if you want. I'll laugh at myself. Okay, my kids laugh at me all the time. Anyway, good morning, everyone. All right, well, we are on our 2020 vision uh, sermon series, and um, we are talking about the importance of what that looks like. Now, most churches, what they do is at the beginning of any kind of, of, of starting of a calendar year, they usually set out for vision and vision for what God has in, uh, instilled in the hearts of his leaders as he appointed them to this church and moving forward for what this looks like. But it's his vision through us and trying to reach not just the people in our church, but those who are, are far away from God and those who may not know Christ. So we can really outreach into the community and make a difference and let them know that we care and love them. And we want to do that as a church. So that's vital for us. One of the things that we want to keep moving forward and doing as a church too, because the purpose of a church is to make disciples. But in order to make disciples, we have to have evangelism. And evangelism means that we're trying to reach those who, who may not have heard about the true gospel of Jesus Christ and what can we do to reach them by doing it in a relational manner, by making contacts, by spending time with people, by talking to them, by saying hello, getting to know someone, building a relationship. It starts there, and we hope that we can, whether it be with our neighbors, whether it be with our coworkers, whether it be with someone that we, that we come in contact with, wherever it may be. Because when I go to a store, and I'm new in the area, I've only been here about six months, but when I'm in the store and I look around, and it's not familiar for me, because I'm originally from the Northeast area and up even in the New England area, they call it, um, it's like something where I, I see the difference in our makeup. But when I do walk around, what I do see are people, people who've been created by God with the intention to know him. God desires for people to have a relationship with him, and he sent his son for that purpose, to save them from their sin, to have that opportunity of forgiveness of sin, and to come close with him. See, when someone did that with me, I came to the understanding that I had the opportunity to have a relationship with this God who created the heavens and the earth. And that's what should be our passion. I never envisioned that I would be a, a child of God, a Christian, nor would I have ever envisioned when I was a young person I would be a pastor. But I'm a child of God. I'm created by God with a purpose to reach all people who, come, who I come in contact with. And I pray that that would be all of our desires and our vision in our lives. Because visions are either personal or they can be or could be corporate like in this type of setting. There's a vision for every company. There's a vision for every church. There's a vision for everybody who has a business. When I had a business that was a small-time business for three years in Dallas, I had a vision for that, that I would provide a, 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 a service to people, not only a good service for working to remodel their homes or remodel whatever they needed for painting or even fixing stuff outside like decks and, and, and fences, but I wanted to provide a service where people will feel loved, excited, and feel there was an integrity with the person that that they were dealing with, with the person that was giving them that service. So I wanted to make sure that we were clean, that we had that service, that we were moving forward. And for the most part, most people felt that way. And that's what I envisioned having just a very small season in my life, a short season in my life with a small business, being able to provide that. But there was a vision in my heart to believe, be able to, what was the vision? It wasn't so much having the business. The vision was taking care of my family in a time where I was in transition from seminary into ministry opportunities. So I took it as my business was my ministry. 
And my business was an opportunity to share forth the love of God and everything that I did. Last week, we talked about a convincing vision, one that we're confident with, one that we can bring forth. And we looked at the life of Nehemiah. Today, what we're talking about with this 2020 vision in the life of Nehemiah is a compelling vision, one that when one is compelled to share vision, one has to be convinced of that vision, confirmed by God. One needs to, before they are being able to share it with someone and to convince someone to come and join him or her, one has to be totally immersed with that vision, sure enough to say that I'm going to go forward and share it with others. And so with a vision, you have to understand too that visions are not something, they're general. They're not always specific. It's a broad stroke of wondering as to where we're going to go. And you don't know what the outcome is going to be, but you hope that the outcome will, will be what you're envisioning. When we talked about last week with Henry Ford, one of the greatest inventors of our time, there was another person I mentioned last week of whom he connected with and had friendships with, and one of them was Thomas Edison. We know Thomas Edison. He was close to 1,100 different inventions that he was involved in. But uh, four of them, or three or four of them that we know of, is obviously the electric light bulb, the electric power industry, motion pictures, and even the phonograph. He was involved in, in inventing these particular um, en en entities that were important for moving forward in society. And as he did so, he envisioned life for the person, not only here in America, but for all over the world. And, he, and when he envisioned, he envisioned that there would even be, at, at one point, he had a vision for clean urban transportation, anticipating the importance of electric cars even had that vision at one point in the early 1900s. So here was his friend, Henry Ford, who wanted to bring forth automobiles. Here he was thinking about even electric vehicles. And so he was, he was constantly thinking, but what, what, he also, what, what he also did was he contributed to our society about having inventions as a means of coming together in labs and being innovative and thinking out of the box and thinking about things that could help our society grow, similar to Henry Ford. And so he worked out that. In fact, in, in, um, in, in the 1900s especially, it says here in one of the articles that it says, most solar energy companies today are quick to quote how Edison recognized the importance of solar and wind energy in the late 1920s. For what he envisioned then as the future double-barreled problem of fossil fuel scarcity and the attendant air pollution concerns. No wonder Life magazine named him the man of the millennium. And so he was one who was always looking to uh, increase and improve society. But he had some principles, four simple principles that helped him as he moved along as an inventor says that he learned this from his loving mother. One was, never get discouraged if you fail. Learn from it and keep trying. Number two, learn with both your head and your hands. Number three, not everything of value in life comes from books. Experience the world. Number four, never stop learning. Read the entire panorama of literature. So he was a man who continued believed in giving every effort possible when he grabbed onto a vision. Most people are afraid to in, 
to go forward with a vision. Whenever we think of a vision, we think of a dream. And when we think of a dream, we talked last week that dreamers just think about things. But visionaries, they begin to execute. They make a difference by getting involved in it. So as a visionary, he always made sure that he would execute toward it. But many of us struggle. We'll see a vision. We'll have a vision. But we're afraid that if we try to make a step toward it, we're going to fail. And so instead of doing so, we just forget it. We just push it aside and say, ah, that's just a dream. It's a crazy dream. It doesn't even make any sense. But lo and behold, many of the things that have been invented, things that have now been successful today, are people who have taken risks and have been willing to take risks and even to the point of taking a risk of failing. How many of us, when we're challenged with life, we're just afraid to take that next step? Because we're afraid we're not adequate enough. We're not smart enough. We don't have the intelligence to be able to go forward. I'll tell you, I think we're doing a disservice to ourselves and even as a Christian, a disservice to God. And I think it's important because I love what Thomas Edison said. He said this, he says, having a vision for what you want is not enough. Vision without execution is hallucination. It's, it's just you have to be willing to move forward. You know, we know that he invented the, well, he, they say that he invented, he not invented the light bulb, that, but he created it to, to come about and create it in a way where it would work. But what most, most of us don't understand or know, maybe you do know this, is that it took him over a thousand times before he perfected it. And a reporter asked him, he says, how did it feel to fail a thousand times? Edison replied, I didn't fail a thousand times. The light bulb was an invention with a thousand steps. You see how he stood, he, he, he saw it as, and he stood for it saying, it's not failure. It steps toward creating something. He was willing to do whatever possible to make a difference with his vision. Now, see, when we are in, in forth casting a vision, any kind of vision in our lives, whether it's personal or for a church, it's got to be compelling. And before we can share that, before we can cast it, we have to be convinced of it. There's, a, there's an importance of knowing that. With Nehemiah, we see that in his life. He's a cupbearer. He's 500 miles away from the vision that God gave him. He's servicing the king. We talked about that. He was in a comfortable place. He was in a safe place. But yet God instilled in him a vision that only he could instill in him because when he heard the news about Jerusalem being desolate, shameful, and guilt came upon him and upon the city because he realized that with the gates burned and the walls broken, that it wasn't about the wall, the gates. It was the fact that the name of God was shamed. The city of Jerusalem was to represent God. It was to reveal his glory and, and to reflect his glory, reveal his character, and to represent him well. It was to be a, a, a particular representation to the Gentile nations. But as I said last week, the Gentile nations didn't see them as a threat because they became apathetic seeing that the wall was broken and the gates were burned and they lived with all that around them. And yet they did nothing about it. And God was trying to place on their hearts, and he calls on Nehemiah to come from 500 miles away, and he stills in his heart a vision to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. And so he's going forth and doing this, and he's been overwhelmed with it, but we understand, too, that in order to do so, before you're casting a, a compelling vision, you have to know that each one of us, we have to be connected to God and convinced of his vision, connected to God and convinced of his vision. See, that's what it was for, for Nehemiah. He understood 
God was placing it on his heart, and he had to come to that understanding in his heart. And as you look at the verses here, and we understand in verse 3 and 4, I'm going to read that before we get to verse 5. We know that he, he said one thing in verse 4 that we mentioned. He said that he was overwhelmed, overwhelmed with passion. He says, as, as soon as I heard these words, the words that the wall of Jerusalem was broken down and the gates were burned, he said, I heard these words and I sat down and wept and mourned for days as I continued fasting and praying before the Lord God of heaven. I'm going to tell you something. That he had a burden, God called on his heart. He didn't push it away and said, I hope someone else does it. God placed it on his heart, and he was moved with passion to turn to the Lord. He was connected with God. How many times when we, when we, we have to hear from God about something that's in our lives, when God places something in our way, how often are we willing to lean on God? How willing are we just to hear his voice? How often do, when we hear a vision, we're afraid of moving forward? What if the king, if he knew that he has to go before the king, he knew he had to go, the Lord was calling on his heart, what if the king would have said no? What would have happened then? See, what if the king just said, nah, it's not going to happen. Sorry, you got to stay here and serve me. What if that were the case? See, it took him four months to pray and cry out to God. He wouldn't even go to the king yet because he knew that he had to pray. And as you and I, as we are here at Grace Church, before we even see a vision unfold, we have to go to the Lord in prayer and cry out to him in praying and fasting. we got to cry out to him and saying, God, what do you want us really to do? You have to set it before us. You have to go before us. You have to show God, we believe this is your vision, but we don't know what you're going to do. And so we have the what and the why, but Lord, we want to know how. And he didn't know how at this moment in chapter 1, but he leaned on God. He was connected with God. And he wanted to be convinced of this vision that God was calling on his heart. And so what he did, he, he went to the Lord and he confessed sin on behalf of the Jews. And he prayed and he cried out to God. And he even took responsibility as liaison, as one of those front, front people, as a prophet going before God saying, we need this. And so we need to know that before we move forward, we have to hear from God. But what if he did say no? What if the king would have said, no, you can't go? How often do we talk ourselves out of what God has called us to do? Sometimes we don't even turn to God. We see the situation saying, no, not going to happen. I can't do it. I'm inadequate. I don't have the ability to do it. I just don't have the goods. There's no way God wants to use me. Look at me. Look at my situation. I'm just not capable Sometimes we just talk ourselves out of it without even looking to the Lord. Or two, it could be how often do we make a decision in our minds and hearts before spending time in prayer. We don't even turn to the Lord. We don't even give it a second thought. We just say no. But what if we did spend time in prayer and then God says, yes, I want you to go. Or yes, I want you to do something here. I know of many people, even someone in our church right now, who months ago I asked him if he would consider doing something and he said no, and then within four or five months, he came to me a couple of weeks ago. He says, I think God's calling on me to do that very thing you asked me to do. And see, it takes prayer, but he was praying. He was seeking God. He took four or five months to just look to the Lord in prayer. And I think that that's something that you and I have to learn to do, to lean on God. We need to often know that our hearts, when we're drawing close to God, when we're hearing his voice, then we know he's going to say in a still voice, I'm calling you because I'll give you the ability to do it. And I believe that's what he was doing with Nehemiah. I'm, I'm moved with, when you look at these particular passages and, 
you're seeing one specifically in Nehemiah verse 4 of chapter 2. He said this. Now, I love Nehemiah because he's going before the king. And as I said last week, and he's about to ask the king, can I go? And he says this. He's the writer of this book. And he's, he interjects one particular statement. He says, so I prayed to the God of heaven. He didn't ju- it doesn't say, then the king said to me, what are you requesting? And it goes right into verse 5. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say, and and I said to the king. He stopped and he said, so I prayed to the God of heaven. He leaned on the Lord for God to give him wisdom and direction and clarity. That's important we understand about the process because the results are his. We just got to learn what does that mean, the how. We want to know where is God going to take us. And so the first thing before you cast a compelling vision, you want to make sure, as we said, you are connected with God and convinced of his vision. Two, you want to survey the land, the lay of the land before we convey, convey the plan to others. So we want to survey the lay of the land. So as we look at Nehemiah, we're looking at chapter 2, verse 11. But before we get to verse 11, we have to talk about the narrative here. Because he is now arriving in Jerusalem. He's traveled 500 miles. But what he has found out is that just like in Ezra 15 years earlier when they were trying to rebuild the whole city with both the temple and the wall, there was opposition and enemies that were coming around him. So Nehemiah knew about that. And whenever a vision has come forth, we have to understand that in any case, there's sometimes people around us who want to stop it. And so in verse 9 of chapter 2, just stick with me here and as we read, Then I came to the governors of the providence beyond the river, and he gave them to the king's letters. So these were the letters that were mentioned in verses 6 through through 10, or yes, 6 through 8, excuse me, where he was given the letters from the king so that he could start rebuilding the wall, getting the materials necessary, getting the permits to be able to start this. And so he brings the king's letters with him, and he goes, Now the king had sent with me officers of the army of the horsemen. So he has these officials with him. He has the horsemen. He has the army with him as he's going into his city, we call the city of Jerusalem. But when Sambalat, the Hor- Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite, servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So what was happening here? Well, we have to understand this from the history even in Deuteronomy. An Ammonite was an enemy of Jerusalem, an enemy of the Jews. Tobiah was married to someone who was working on the wall who was a Jew. And he was what they would call a CIA central intelligence person because he worked alongside of Sam Ballot, who was the governor of Samaria, who was an enemy of the Jews. But Tobiah, because he had an in with marry, being married to someone who was a Jew, he would sit in the middle and get information from the Jews and then, and then inform the other, Sam Ballot, of what's going on. And so what was happening was that there was a spy in the midst. And Sam Ballot, who was in charge of the army, and Tobiah was the director of the intelligence, there was something that was going on where Nehemiah knew this was happening. So he had to protect himself. Not only did he have to survey the lay of the land of seeing what was going with all the ruins and the desolation, he had to make sure knowing that he had enemies around him. You know, Warren Wernsby is uh, one, of, one of the great commentaries of, of, that he's written over all. They're called the B-series 
but he shared this in one of his commentaries in the book of Nehemiah. He said this, if Samballot was in charge of the army, then Tobiah was the director of the intelligence division of their operation. It was he who gathered inside information from his Jewish friends and passed it along to Samballot and Geshem. And Nehemiah would soon discover that his biggest problem was not the enemy on the outside, but the compromisers on the inside. A problem the church still faces today. And see, what happens is, just like with Nehemiah, even in church ministry, a problem isn't outside of these four walls. Sometimes casting vision in a compelling manner, you have people on the inside fighting against it. And see, when God gives us a vision, we need everybody to come together, working together as a team. And Nehemiah knew he couldn't convince those people. He knew that they were enemies. He knew that Samballot was directly an enemy. And Tobiah played as the spy. And Nehemiah knew that he had to do something here. Because here's what the problem was. It wasn't just at the time of Ezra, which is in chapter 4, 7 through 23. Even in Nehemiah, chapter 4, 7 through 23, there's a similar type of narrative going on in both chapters. The enemies were trying to stop the work. They were trying to stop the hand of God of rebuilding the new wall there in Jerusalem to bring forth the city, to lift them up so they can be a light to the Gentiles because the Gentiles didn't see them at that time as a threat, but now they wanted to rebuild the city and to bring forth the name of God, to reveal his character, to reflect his glory, and to represent him well in the area. But in the book of Nehemiah, seven times it was mentioned that the enemies tried to stop the work on the wall. In chapters 2, 4, and 6. And so he went there. In verse 12, as you look at this, he went there. And it says that when he went to Jerusalem, he was there for three days. Some scholars believe he was just there to rest. He was traveled 500 miles. He had to rest. He had to get a, a, an idea of what his surrounding was. He was getting himself ready because he had to survey the lay of the land before he can convey. And this is what he said. He said, then I rose in the night. And I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. So he wasn't going to convey it because he had to survey the land. He went at night. Why did he go at night? Because the enemies would have seen what he was doing. Samballot, Tobiah would have came around and taunted him. They would have whispered in his ear and saying, what in the world are you doing here? You really think you're going to rebuild a wall and bring forth a new Jerusalem here? Are you kidding me? No way. See, they were going to taunt him, but instead what he did is he went at night. And he made sure that he surveyed the land at night with his, with his guys, being able to see what was happening. How often when God gives us a vision and we're afraid to go forth with it is when the enemy, Satan, is just taunting us in our ears. He's talking to us and saying we're not good enough. We can't be able to do what God has called us to do. There's no way. We don't have the goods. We're inadequate. There's no way. And he's going to speak into our ears, and he's going to try. The enemy's always trying to do that. And then when he discourages us and disappoints us, and then we look at ourselves in the mirror and say, there's no way God wants to use me, then we become discouraged, and we don't want to get involved. We, we're afraid of failing, and so we don't get involved. We don't participate. We don't get involved with what's happening. Instead, what ends up happening is we become spectators and commentaries. And God's not called that for each one of us. And Nehemiah understood that. Nehemiah understood that he had enemies around him, and he wasn't going to listen to them. He wasn't going to give them an opportunity to speak in his ear. He went at night. Because he had to hear for sure if God was calling him to this. He wanted to be confident. 
Because before he can convey this plan, before he can cast it out in a compelling manner, he had to make sure and he had to look and research and, and look at and survey that land and make sure that the walls were what they were telling him to do. Too often we're, we're taken away by that. And he mentions it twice. I went out by night. And even in verse 15, I went out by night because he knew he had a CIA spy and Sam Ballot ready to bring him down. And see, for us, even when, when he was traveling around the west side into the south and even into the east, just surveying two miles around, he had to get the necessary information to cast a compelling vision to the people around him because he knew he couldn't do it by himself. See, I'm going to tell you as a pastor, I'm going to stand up before you and be transparent and say that we often fail to cast a compelling vision. Howard Hendricks from Dallas Theological Seminary, uh, a truly endearing man whom we all loved and called prof, said that most pastors, what happens that if when they're in the pulpit, if it's a mist in the pulpit when they're trying to cast out a compelling vision, it will be a fog in the pew. And too often, that's what happens. We fail in that area. And I hope that today, in some way, somehow, that I can encourage you to know that there is a need for us to have a compelling vision. And my hope is that today, you will get a hold of what God is wanting for Grace Church and moving forward for the kingdom of God. That we could reach those who are far away from him and be able to do something about it by being a participator, come alongside of and help and work with the church and moving forward. Because we can't do it alone. And Nehemiah knew he couldn't do it alone. He knew that even though God gave him the vision, he needed to make sure that everyone was going to come alongside and work together as a team. So it was vital that he did that. So as he was doing that, he was trying to compel or trying to lead others and compelling, and there's a process in casting a compelling vision. There's a process. And so verse 17 of chapter 2 in Nehemiah is going to lay that out. But the first, the first one is this, discern the problem. You need to discern the problem. What's vital about understanding about a vision is that it needs to be a problem. There needs to be a problem. I, mean, I know for some of you who are, your makeup is you're afraid, you don't like problems, you want to quickly cover them up. See, if one doesn't like to deal with problems, then one will never look for a true solution. We need, we need to understand that with a problem, most people will either try to avoid it, cover it up, or even try to make a quick fix so that no one will find out there was a problem. And most people have a difficult time looking for the proper solution. Because see, so often we just want to cover it up. We don't want to confront anyone. We don't want to have conflict. We don't want to have difficulties. You like peace. You're a perfect peace type of person. But we have to understand that a vision will never be truly carried out unless we find out the true problem. We have to discern it. See, the problem wasn't just a rebuilding of a wall. The problem was that the name of God was not lifted up in Jerusalem. It was shamed and, and there was a reproach. And the Gentile nation saw and the people of God didn't care. See, the problem behind the problem was this. That people came accustomed with the broken walls. They came accustomed with the fact that there was burnt gates. They didn't care. They accepted it. And that led to apathy. You know, if someone comes into your home, you know, I don't know about you, but I have some projects in my home that need to be done 
quite a few of them. But I go into my bathroom, I know there's a project that needs to be done, and I just try to avoid it like the plague. Every time I see it, I take my shower, get myself ready, and I get out. I don't want to look at it because if I look at it, I know I'm going to stop, and I'm going to ruin my day, I'm going to ruin my schedule, and I'm going to start working on my bathroom. The problem is I just avoid it. I just push away. I don't want to deal with it. I just cover it up. I tried to cover it up, and I messed it up. And I said, ah, man, I got to do this right. But it takes time and effort. It takes energy, and I don't have that time right now. But too often when people do, when they have visions, they don't fulfill them. They're afraid of failing, and because they're also afraid they don't have the time. And see, often what we do is we become apathetic. We accept what's around us. But it takes a fresh new eye like Nehemiah. It takes a fresh new voice to come in. He comes with two eyes with a new focus and he says, hey, wait a minute. I don't know what you guys have been doing here, but do you realize that your walls are broken here? That they're broken down? Do you realize the gates are burnt down? Have you seen this? Have you noticed it? Are you guys, yeah, 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 we noticed it, but what are we going to do about it? We can't do anything about it. That's why God calls on Nehemiah to come with a fresh new look, with a fresh new vision from God. But he understands, too, that it's not about you and them. He has to get it to where everybody understands it's about we and us. We've got to be a team working together. It's never about the you and the them. He didn't sit there, and he didn't blame them, so he discovered the problem. Notice that in the verse right here in verse 17. It says, then I said to them, this is Nehemiah, you see the trouble we are in. So he didn't say that you are in or that all these people that messed this up didn't do anything about it. He says, we are in. He's attached himself with it. Even in chapter 1, 5, he came in and said, I come before you, God, presenting myself on behalf of the people of Israel that we need to confess our sin before you. He took, that's a true leader, that's a visionary, that's a man saying, I want to make a difference. He places himself in the problem. Because each one of us, we're part of the problem. See, the problem isn't the wall problem sometimes is we're not willing to look at the problem. Sometimes the problem's in us, and it's not outside of us. And that's why it's important for us to be challenged to recognize that Nehemiah noticed that. And he goes on and says, you see the trouble we are in now, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with the gates burnt down. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer suffer derision. I mean, he said it in verse 3 of chapter 1. It's quite clear. He sees the connection now. He's like, wow, not only did I hear about it, now I see it. And that becomes more convincing for him, which then becomes a, an opportunity for him to cast it out with a compelling reason. And so we have to understand that. Number two, determine the solution. What's the solution? It's really simple. Here it is. Determine the solution. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer. Derision. That's the solution. The solution is go build the wall. Don't worry about failing. Don't think you're not adequate. I have seen so many people do so many great things in churches where they would go on to missions, on these mission trips, and you would see what people do. And it's amazing. And I would ask them, did you ever think you could do that? No. I never thought I could do that, but God gave me the ability to do it. It was really cool. I've been on so many different missions trips, but here in the U.S., and the things that people learn on mission trips and how they were able to be used. There's so many of us who have gifts and talents and abilities that could be used for the kingdom of God here at Grace Church. We want to encourage you, you can be a part of the solution. It's about we. It's not about you or them, but it's us, we. We have to be a part of it. So we, we want to make sure that the solution comes when we determine that, hey, we're going to, we're going to discover the solution. And the solution was to build the wall. 
The solution was to bring forth the name of God once and for all. The solution was to tell others, the Gentile nations, that God truly exists. Here's the solution. It's you. Look in verse 11 of chapter 1. Never did it say that Nehemiah asked for God to send someone else. He said, Lord, give me grace and success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, meaning the sight of the king. He recognized he was the one that needed to go forth. Third. Declare the reason for change. And I hope in some way we can help you with this. This is the part that I hope today you at least get an idea of why we need to change as a church. Why we need to move forward and reach a world for the kingdom of God. Nehemiah, he declared the reason for his change, for the change. He was one, he had a convicting heart, he had conviction. He was convicted when he was told about Jerusalem He said, Lord, send me. He had a conviction in his heart. He didn't care how much it cost him. He was willing to do it. Two, there was a commitment. He made a commitment. And he made a commitment that he wanted to lift the name of God and give him glory. Three, there was compassion. He had a compassion. He wanted to see others recognize the God of Israel. Because he knew God is a God who is redemptive and restorative. And he wanted to know that the grace that was bestowed upon him, he wanted to show forth that as well. That was important for him. And so when you have to see that the reason was this too. This was another reason that he gave. He says, I told them of the hand of my God that has come upon me for good. And also the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. See, He recognized that the reason was that God was at work. He was leading him. He called him 500 miles away to go do a work. And now his work was to cast this compelling vision to the people around him, to gather them around and saying, you need to do this. You need to come in. We need to work as a team. We need to be able to go forth and show forth that we can rebuild this wall. And he did. And when was the time? See, we know the what and the why. And now we're getting the how. But when? Here's the fourth thing in the process. You need to decide the time for change. When was that time? He said, right now. He said, right now. This is the time. God is calling us to rebuild this wall. That's why he said that. Let us rise up and build. Doesn't matter. You can't say, wait a minute, I'm not sure if I'm adequate or not. Well, do you have two hands? You have some strength? You got someone who can lead you, right, Mike? Someone who can lead you. I see you doing this. It's like, you know, just get up there and start working, right? It's something you got to do. You just got to jump in, put up your hands. I've seen people do amazing work and missionary work, and they've never, ever worked with their hands. But they had the confidence to know that God's called them for that time to do the work. And in 52 days, they built a wall. 52 days because everybody came together and took sections. It's just amazing what God did. So what compels you to embrace God's vision for Grace Church. How can you come together and help? How can we come together? How can we be a team? We're better together, working together, coming alongside of, being a participator, coming alongside and working, not being any spectator or any kind of commentary, but just moving forward. How can we compel you? What compels you? Well, here's our vision. As you think about this, here's our vision. At Grace Church, we envision reaching the world from Waldorf by making a local impact that touches the world. We want to start it here. 
We want to start it here at our church and move forward. You know, I shared these diagrams with you. I just want to go over them real quickly again. You have the missional church. Each circle in the font of the lettering represents an equivalent emphasis of showing how we need to be as a church. So when you see upward, you see inward, you see outward. Upward is our focus on God, intimacy-driven, drawing close to him, loving him, praying, seeking, praying and fasting, hearing from him. Then we want to do an inward. That means discipleship-driven. It doesn't mean program-driven. It means purpose-driven, being about discipleship. And then third, outward, outward-reach-driven, just reaching the world. Starting relationships with those who don't come to our church, talking to them, connecting with them in some manner, praying about those opportunities. If you find someone who likes to play golf, go take them out for golf. If they like coffee, take them out for coffee. If they like to eat breakfast like me, take them out for breakfast. Do something. Invest in the kingdom of God by reaching people. Because here's the thing. We have to be about two things in the church, discipleship and evangelism. You see the arrows moving back and forth? You can't do one or the other. If you're being discipled properly, you're going to evangelize. You can't have a discipleship without evangelism. they got to work together. And the scriptures are clear on that. So as a missional church, we want to be about upward, inward, and outward. We want to be about the word of God and prayer and spiritual disciplines. We want to be about the inward, a simulation, life groups, which we're going to be talking about more, about life groups getting connected, men's and women's ministries, marriage conferences, all of this coming together. But we want it to filter through the life groups because we believe those are the groups that are going to help shepherd people and connect. And then outward, reach week, men's and women's events, Sunday invite. Because here's the thing. This is what we're looking at. Grace Church, 2020 vision, life groups, student children's ministry. Talk in a minute about that. Sunday experience. Those are the three areas we want to focus on this year. And here I have some statistics. This is from the 2019 Children's Ministry Statistics from ministrytochildren.com. And these were 400 Kidmen leaders that were reviewed and surveyed. Uh, and what they found was that two-thirds of Christians came to faith before the age of 18. Conversion, age 21, is rare, but only a quarter of believers are converted to Christ. 43% came to Christ at age 12. Half of the children who come to Christ are led by parents, meaning there's relationships with parents that tell them about Jesus, live it out, are witness to them, they invest with their children. 29% listed children's ministry as a factor. Now, down here in the middle, it says 86% of Kidman leaders serve because Jesus loves kids. See, they get involved. That means people are serving in the children's ministry, are passionate about what they're doing. They're not, it's not a babysitting ministry. It's not a covering. I can tell you, Heather Bell is our children's director. I can assure you, she's not looking for you to just fill in a spot. She wants you to invest. She wants you to get involved. She wants you to be a part of that. Even teenagers can get involved. We have teenagers back there serving. We have adults that are serving. But I can assure you, she needs more workers. And we're going to talk about it in just a minute. But 42% of parenting-aged adults belong to a church. Almost half. But we want a new generation of younger families. Why? Because it's not because we don't think the older people are important. They are. They're all important. But what we need the older generation to do is come in like grandparents, come in like parents, come alongside and serve and minister to the younger generation. The younger generation needs to know what it's like to work through having children. It's the first time at every stage that we deal with our children. <laughs> 
And so those who have gone through some of the stages I haven't arrived yet, I can lean on them and, and see if we can get some help. So it's important for us to understand that. And 65% of Kidman leaders go online for ideas and encouragement. So that's some of the stuff that we want to do. But here's the key component. I want to share something with you about our children's ministry. At Grace Church, we want to make a difference. At Grace Church, we think children's ministry, youth ministry, student ministry are very important. And we envision to invest in our children's ministry. In recent months, we've re recognized that we're over 30 kids on, about, on a weekly basis. And if all the kids were here, all the families were here on one Sunday, we'd have over 40 kids in the back just at the 11 o'clock hour. And that's amazing because God is doing a work. But why is it important for us? One, because families must worship and serve at church together, number one. They must come together and serve and worship together. Two, children's ministry is the trifecta, one of the trifecta of ministry. Sunday experience, children, and student ministry. Three, children will motivate parents to attend church. I can assure you of this. I know children are saying, come on, mom, come on, dad, we want to go to church. Sometimes parents are tired, they had a rough week, they want to sleep in, they don't want to go to church. I get it. But the parents are, or the kids are jumping up and down saying, take me to church, take me to church. When we have a ministry that is attracting families and it's a ministry that's investing in children, they're going to want to come back. I remember that because when we went to a church one time, the pastor was great. But I wasn't really concerned about him preaching to me. I was more concerned about the children's ministry. And when Maria was a young girl then, we went in the back. We saw the ministry was investing in children. And that's when we were sold. Because we know that our kids are going to want to go to church then. And they want to be involved and invested. Four, parents must invest in order to see results. They must invest. Five, our children's director can't do it alone, just like Nehemiah. So this is what I would encourage you to do. If you are part of, uh, you have children that are in our ministry, you're at that age where you have children, can I encourage you? Heather, are you here? Can you stand up? Heather, are you here? Is she here? She's not here. Okay, all right. I asked her if she was going to be here. She's not here. Okay, Matt, can you stand up? This is the better half. No, no. <laughs> no, no, it's Matt. Matt's her husband. And I want to tell you something. They would. Would you like to see parents sign up at least one out of eight weeks to help in back in the ministry back there? Would you? Would you like to see that happen? Absolutely. Okay. So that's what we want to see. If you want to help, we want to encourage you to sign up with Heather Bell. Talk to her so she can show you. She wants to see you investing in children's ministry in some way, some form. We want to see you do that. We would encourage you to do that. We need you to be a part of that. It's the we that's important there that's, that's vital. For student teen ministry, this is what, what moves us. There's student teen depression. Depression affects about 20% of our adolescents by the time they become adults. Teen suicide is the third leading cause of death between the ages of 10 and 24 in the U.S. And leading factors to depression can be biological, psychological, or environmental. And, and what leads them to it could be a low self-esteem, poor body image, highly self-critical, feeling helpless when dealing with negative events, peer pressure, bullying, needing to get good grades, feeling and loved by parents, performance-driven environment, verbal, sexual, and physical abuse. It's existing in our society. That's why 
this is the reason why we need a good youth ministry and children's ministry. And I want to encourage you. This is vital for us to have that because we want to reach the world for the kingdom of God. I have a map here. This is a 10-mile radius. On the top and north, it's, it's just above Brandywine. On the bottom, it's just hitting Mechanicsville. To the east, it's Eagle Harbor. To the west, it's around the Port Tobacco area. This is a 10-mile radius. If you would drop a stone in the middle, and this was a big lake, the ripple effects would go close to about that 10 miles. But then we have a 15-mile radius, and that goes a little bit further. On the north, it's Joint Base Andrews. To the south, it's Mount Victoria. To the east, it's Prince Frederick, and then Marbury on the, on the, on the west side. But the idea is that we want to reach all people, and we believe the greatest impact we're going to make is that inside circle. We want to. And that's why I shared those stats last week. It's important for us to grasp this and realize this should be our vision to reach those who are outside of us. But we, I can't do it alone. Us as pastors, we can't do it as a pastoral team. We need everybody in. Everybody bought in. A buy-in that says we're going to make a difference. Invest. Invite. Get people. Start relationships with people around you. That's important because that's key to moving forward because this is our vision for this year. Rebuilding grace from the inside while reaching the world outside. See, that's the key. That's the key. Jesus came to die. Jesus came to die a brutal death for you and I. He came to shed his blood for redemption of sin. He came for forgiveness of sin. That's why we want to do this. That's why we want to reach the world. He reached us. We want to reach others. As we even think about communion, and we think about the symbols in the Lord's Supper. It represents the body and the blood of Jesus. It's the gospel. It's what we understand and know that is because of what he did. When we're trusting in it, we have received the forgiveness of sin and have the hope of Christ each day. And we have the opportunity to share Christ with whomever comes around us. But he was willing to be broken. He was willing to come on mission from the Father to be sent from the Father for the purpose of dying for you and I. And he saved us from a debt we could not pay. But he was willing to be broken and brutally beaten for the sake of you and I. As we think about that, and we have to be reminded of that, I, I just want to share one scripture here with you that Jesus said when he was dealing with Zacchaeus, who was a tax collector, known to be one of the scum of the earth at that time. And it says there in Luke, Luke writes, And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to your house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the son of man it came to seek and save the lost. That's what we do when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We celebrate what Christ has done by seeking each one of us. So as we prepare, as we think about the Lord's Supper, I want to encourage you. If you're here for the first time and you don't know what it means to have a relationship with God, being forgiven of your sin, or of any of that, I want to encourage you to stay where you're seated. This is family business. These are for people who are Christians. These are people who have come to faith in Christ. We want to invite you to come and to receive these elements. But if you, are, if you haven't and you would love to know what it means to have a relationship with God, I want to encourage you. Please come up. We could talk to myself or Pastor Dennis. We would love to share the gospel with you and the message that saved us and it can save the world. So as we take this moment, let's pray. And as we prepare, and, and after I pray, we want to invite you to come up and, and take the elements and go back to your seats and just reflect and confessing of sin.
and reflect on the, on the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for reminding us that the most important thing is that we recognize that you saved us from our sin, that you came to die on the cross for sin, that you took on a brutal death. Your body was mangled, your blood was shed for forgiveness of sin. You took on the greatest, greatest death, death that anyone could ever take. It was an act of love. And this morning I pray that as we celebrate and reflect on the elements, the symbols of the broken body and the blood that was shed, may I pray this morning that we would reflect by confessing our sin, knowing that we have a Savior who has cleansed us when we confess our sin. And I pray that as we go back and we reflect, may it change us and that we can rejoice knowing that you saved us. So God, just lead us as we look to you in this time. In Jesus' name, amen.